Turn to Psalm 5. We're going to start here this morning. I'm going to read this psalm. Psalm 5. This is a psalm written by David. He says to the choir master for the flutes, a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry. My King and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning you prepare a sacrifice. I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me, for there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them. Let those who love your name may exalt in you. For you, bless the righteous, O Lord, you cover him with favor as with a shield. Sometimes I wonder if Psalm 5 was one of the prayers that Jesus prayed on the night that he was arrested. We know that historically speaking, as I said, David wrote the psalm. He wrote it specifically to be a song, sung with flutes. But other than that, we really have no other background information to this psalm. We really don't know anything else. But this is no less applicable to Jesus and to his own enemies. There should be no doubt that Jesus prayed the psalms. He prayed them often. The clearest example of this is when he cried out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's a direct quote from Psalm 22, verse 1. But besides that, he also quoted from Psalm 31, Psalm 41, Psalm 110, Psalm 118, and many others. Jesus prayed, Jesus sang, Jesus lived the Psalms, and Psalm 5 is no exception to that. And so we can picture him in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane praying, Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my God and my King, for to you do I pray as he sweat drops of blood. But then we have to wrestle with the verses that actually say, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. And so far, so good. But then we read, You hate all evildoers. 
You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. How do we make sense of those statements? This is clearly the word of God. We can't simply say God hates the sin but loves the sinner because that plainly isn't what the text of Scripture says right there. The text says that God hates the sinner. He says, you hate all evildoers. The Lord abhors the the bloodthirsty and deceitful man, Psalm 5 says. It's not the only place in the Bible that says something like that. Psalm 11, verse 5, the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. There's actually a bunch of places that we can read something similar to that, too. We can even read statements where the, where the author of the Scripture, the writer, the person actually writing it down, where he also hates the sinner. So Psalm 139, verses 21 and 22 says, Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. These are strong words. And they're in God's own hymn book, the Psalms. God's people have sung those words for centuries. So what do we do with them now? What do we do with these words in light of Christianity? In light of the cross? What do we do with these words in light of what Jesus said, for example, in Matthew chapter 5, when he said, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. So is God sending mixed messages? Or is there something deeper going on here? Well, I think the answer to that lies in in one word. It's, It's a word that we don't often use very much anymore, but we should, I think. The word is long-suffering, long-suffering. Our God is a long-suffering God. He's patient. He's merciful. He's not short-tempered or easily angered. And John chapter 6 shows us this very clearly. So, I want to read John 6. It's a longer chapter. We're finishing it this morning. But I want to read the whole chapter so that we understand where we've been And where we conclude here. So John chapter 6, beginning right in verse 1, says this. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the sea, Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him, because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. And Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? And Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and 
when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered, answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what signs do you do that we may see and believe? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said that you have seen me, yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Father and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose mother and father we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. 
This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe. And who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Let's just stop and pray. Lord, you have said that your word will not return to you void. Help us to understand these things, Lord. Help us to understand and believe. Give us ears to hear. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week as we finished up, uh, started to finish uh, this chapter, we said that there were two responses to Jesus, to all of this, uh, all of his words here, two responses here at the end of the chapter, either rejection or acceptance. We mostly look at the acceptance of the Twelve disciples, namely Simon Peter's confession of faith. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And so this morning, we turn our attention to the rejection of Jesus by the others here in this chapter. And amongst these others, um, that's pretty much everyone except the twelve, there's essentially three categories But in reality, they have one thing in common. They've all heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, they've all seen Jesus with their eyes. They've heard him preach and teach. They've heard him with their own ears. They've witnessed the signs that he has done. They've seen Jesus. And they all conclude that Jesus must therefore be rejected. 
But in rejecting Jesus, they are necessarily rejecting his claims. So here in John chapter 6, the central verse of the chapter, the central claim of John chapter 6, really is verse 35. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And the first and really the loudest group who will reject his claim are the Jews. The Jews. Now, we've mentioned the Jews before as we've worked through John's gospel. In fact, throughout his gospel, he uses this title, the Jews, John does, so often that even in modern times, or maybe especially in modern times, people have accused him of anti-Semitism. He clearly hates the Jews, even though John himself is Jewish. But for John, this is a specific group of people that at the beginning of his gospel, at the beginning of John's uh, gospel here, it consists mainly of the Jewish religious leadership. But as time goes on, it kind of morphs into a group of ethnically Jewish people who reject Jesus and his claims, and their religious leaders will actually end up demanding his execution. In fact, we can follow their progression. When we are first introduced to the Jews in John chapter 1, verse 19, they actually seem, they really just seem curious. John 1, 19 says this, and this is the testimony of John, that is John the Baptist, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Who are you, they say. So the Jews, the Jewish leadership, they send a, a delegation to John the Baptist to determine just exactly who this man is. They've heard of his teaching, and he's been attracting large crowds. This is actually the right thing for them to do as priests and Levites. They had been set apart as the, as the gatekeepers, so to speak, for God's people really especially of their religious life, the religious life of God's people, the people of Israel. They should have done their due diligence in investigating this, this crazy teacher out in the wilderness. But as time moves on, we can begin to see their, their growing antagonism toward Jesus, especially when he has the audacity to, to cleanse the temple, to turn over the tables and drive out the money changers. The profiteers, which is incidentally what they should have done. Um, this actually happens at the time of the Passover, almost exactly a year earlier from this chapter 6. We read in John chapter 2, verses 18 to 20. So the Jews said to him, to Jesus, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days? Now, at this point in the gospel, you really kind of have to, you kind of have to read between the lines a, a bit to see that, that the Jews are not all that enthused about Jesus. At, at best, when you read the, the words that they speak, you, you can see confusion on their part, but you kind of have to read it uh, into um, what the narrator tells us. But by the time we get to John chapter 3, and we read of his nighttime conversation with Nicodemus, one of the rulers of the Jews, it says in the first couple of verses of John 3. 
It's during this discussion with Nicodemus that Jesus makes his famous statement in John three sixteen and 17, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Then we don't read anything more in that passage about Nicodemus. He just doesn't understand. We really don't read anything more in chapter 3 about the rest of the Jews for that matter. In fact, it's not until John chapter 5 that we really see the, the hostility of the Jews toward Jesus begin to, begin to really develop, begin to heat up. And it culminates in chapter 5 verse 18 which says, This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. They're seeking all the more to kill him. By chapter 5 of John's gospel, the Jewish leadership is so strongly opposed to Jesus that they're ready to kill him. But if you remember, in chapter 5, they were in Jerusalem. Here in chapter 6, at least by the middle of the chapter, they're in Capernaum in Galilee, which is further north. And even here, far away from the, from the capital city, far away from the, the temple, far away from the, uh, the national leadership, they're grumbling about him, disputing among themselves, verse 40 and verse uh, 52 tells us. These are still Jewish leaders, but they're local Jewish leadership, not the national Jewish leadership, which is in the temple. Those Jews in Jerusalem are are ready to kill him, and these are grumbling and disputing about him. And so here's the point. The rejection of Jesus by by the Jews, the Jewish leadership, it's spreading. It's growing, and it eventually it will lead to what we will read in John chapter 18, verses 12, 13, and 14, when a band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus, bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient, listen, that one man should die for the people. It would be expedient for one man to die for the people, Caiaphas said. He was so right, wasn't he? Yet he was so wrong. Even in his rejection, he had it right, even though he was so wrong in his motives. But our God is a long-suffering God. And yet we need to understand that this unbelief on the part of these, these Jews... Despite this unbelief, despite this growing antagonism and and even desire to kill and destroy Jesus, it, it doesn't delight God. It doesn't make God or Jesus happy. In fact, listen to Romans chapter 9. I want to read just verses 1 through 5. Paul writes with regards to his brothers, the Jewish people. He says, I am speaking the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh, 
They are Israelites. And to them belong the, the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. To them belong, and from their race, he says, according to their flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Such was Paul's great love for the Jewish people that he would willingly lay down his own salvation that they would just turn to him. But Paul can't save them. Paul can't save them. Only Christ can And they're here in in John chapter 6. They're rejecting him. And that rejection was blatant. It was a blatant rejection. It was an overt rejection. A rejection that leads to death. Death for the Messiah. And if they persist in their rejection, it will lead to their death as well. Eternally. But this is where we find a, a glimmer of hope. Even as the Jews rejected Jesus to the point of death, even death on a cross, Jesus prayed while hanging on that cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Crucify him. The Jews cried out in anger and hatred. Crucify him. And while he's hanging on the cross... He prays, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. See, while you you still have breath, no matter how strenuously you have rejected him, forgiveness is still available. Forgiveness is still available. While he's hanging on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Well, at this point, in John's gospel here, we find ourselves staring down the barrel of verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. His disciples... This is the second group of people who reject Jesus and his claims. It is is these disciples here in verse 66. But he begins by saying, after this, after the discussion, after all of these words in this chapter, after the feeding of the 5,000, after Jesus walks across the water, after they seek him out and find him, after he explains to them, I am the bread of life, After this, many, in fact, nearly all of his disciples, his followers, stop following him. And as sad of a fact as that is, this actually says a little bit more than that. See, it literally says that not only did they stop following him, it actually means that they they went back. They went away to the things that they had left behind. They went back to their old lives. In other words, to use a kind of a modern idea, they didn't just simply stop going to church. They renounced their discipleship and they went back to their old lives. To stop following a rabbi 
for the Jewish people was to deny him, to renounce him, to leave him. This is exactly what they did. They renounced their discipleship. They went back to their old lives, but not just their old jobs, not just their old friends and and families. They went back to their former manner of life. They went back to, as Paul will write in Ephesians 4, verses 17 to 22. Just think of this. Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that's not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. They went right back to those things. They went right back to futility. They went right back to darkness. They went right back to alienation. They went right back to ignorance. They went right back to hard-heartedness. They went right back to callousness. They went right back to sensuality and greed and impurity. They went right back to corruption and deceit. Why? Because Jesus was not the Messiah they expected. Remember, back in, back in verse 15, they had tried to take him by force and make him their king. But instead, they found themselves being asked to believe, to put their faith and trust in Christ. They were being asked to receive Christ. He even uses the, the offensive words to eat his flesh and drink his blood, to accept him as the, the perfect and final sacrifice for sin. The perfect Passover lamb. But this was too much for them. And so they turned back and they no longer walked with him. But as I mentioned last week, they, Jesus really didn't expect anything less than this. Verse 64 said this, But there are some of you who do not believe, Jesus said to this crowd. And then John adds, kind of by way of commentary, For Jesus knew from the beginning who it was who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. In fact, a year earlier, at the previous Passover celebration, in John chapter 2, verses 23 to 25, John had said this, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. I have no doubt these are some of the same people. Some of the same people who saw the miracles that he did and and believed in him. They had given Jesus a year of their lives, but Jesus had not entrusted himself to them because he knew their hearts. He knew that this moment would come. He knew that their hearts were not set on him, but on themselves, on their former manner of life. He knew that when the teaching became too hard for them to believe, they would simply walk away. That's exactly what happens. He didn't pander to them. He didn't water down his teaching. He didn't beg them to stay. He he actually just lets them go. He knew that this day would come. Uh, 
F.F. Bruce, as a Scottish Bible scholar, he's dead now, he said this, what they wanted, he would not give. What he offered, they would not receive. What they wanted, he would not give. What he offered, they would not receive. At this point, we should be reminded of a parable that Jesus told. Turn over to Matthew chapter 13. Just back a few books. Matthew 13, verse 1. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns, and when the thorns grew up and choked them, and other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty, He who has ears, let him hear. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he said to them, To you it's been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it's not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see. Hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and with their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, For they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Hear then of the parable of the sower. When anyone hears uh, the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart, so that what is sown, uh, this is what is sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, This is one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what is sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil... This is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and, it, and yields in, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. Jesus told this parable to a, a large crowd sometime uh, before he fed the five thousand. 
sometime in the days or weeks or maybe uh, even up to a couple of months before he fed the 5,000. And we should be able to see that this is one of the moments that he had in mind as he said those things, the desertion of these people in John six sixty six, As he taught this parable, I have no doubt that Jesus was thinking of that verse. Um, and here we're seeing it all come true. In fact, we could say that the Jews who have rejected Jesus out of hand are the seeds that fell along the path and the birds devoured them gone immediately. Then these disciples who are walking away from the seeds are are really verses 5 and 6 of the parable. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose and were scorched, since they had no root, they withered away. This is the the disciples walking away when his teaching gets hard. The twelve are clearly the seeds which fell on the good soil and produced grain. But then we learn about Judas. Judas, we learn, is really verse 7 of that Matthew 13 of the parable. Other seeds fell among thorns, and thorns grew up and choked them. And then Jesus explains down in verse 22, he makes it clear that this is Judas. He says this, as for what is sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. And so here in John chapter 6, we've seen the Jews rejecting Jesus. We've seen the disciples walk away from him. And now we're introduced to the infamous Judas Iscariot. Look at verses 70 and 71. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Now, before we look at Judas, Jesus takes one really brief moment to make a statement to remind the twelve of God's sovereign grace. He says, did I not choose you, the twelve? Jesus seems to have caught probably a whiff of pride in Simon Peter's confession that was not out of character for Peter. Um, And so he gently reminds him of who it was who does the choosing. And I I just want to say at this point, as we think about God's choosing of some, This shouldn't be controversial, but it is, but it shouldn't be. Jesus had said the same thing in verse 29, verse 37, verse 40, verse 44, and verse 65. He says the same thing. The Apostle Paul clearly explains the the theology of of choosing or of election in Romans chapters 8 and 9. Ephesians chapter 1. Clearly, not to mention the entire Old Testament being built upon the idea that God chose a certain group of people and he redeemed them out of the east, out of Ur of the Chaldeans, out of slavery in Egypt, and then even out of captivity in Babylon. He chose them and brought them back to the promised land. But here's the thing. Jesus has to tell this to Peter more than once. Peter's more famous confession in Matthew 16, verses 16 and 17, where we read, Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, son of John, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. God is sovereign in all things, even our confession of faith. God is sovereign even in our salvation. This should comfort us because we need to be reminded of these things over and over and over and over again. Did I not choose you? God says. I chose you. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. If God is for you, who can be against you? He chose you. You're his. I will never leave you or forsake you because I chose you. How comforting is that? That ought to be incredibly comforting that God chose me. I could tell you that if it were up to me, I'd probably fall into one of these other camps. I'd probably be like Judas, actually. Follow the 30 pieces of silver. I know my heart. But we are chosen by His sovereign grace, He says. Did I not choose you, the 12? Yet one of you is a devil, and so we have to deal with the 12 here. We have to deal with Judas. One of you is a devil, Jesus says. This statement makes a definitive point that Judas never truly believed in Jesus. See, some will point to, G- to, to Judas here as proof that, that someone can lose their salvation, that you can pluck yourself from the Father's hand, they might say. But Jesus vividly says here that Judas was not saved. In fact, he says, one of you is a devil. A devil. He was chosen... He says, did I not choose you, the twelve? But he was chosen here for an earthly discipleship, but not to eternal life. It would be a year yet, a year from this point, before Judas would betray Jesus to the chief priests for 30 pieces of silver. But already Jesus declares, one of you is a devil, Um, a servant of Satan is what that means. One of you is following the prince of the power of the air. One of you is following the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. If Judas were truly saved, he could not have fallen away the way that he did. Otherwise, verse 40 could not be true. Verse 40 said, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Everyone. And I will raise him up in the last day. So this begs the question, why was Judas chosen by Jesus to be one of the twelve? Why was he chosen to be one of the twelve? Another dead British theologian, A.W. Pink, uh, he was an author and pastor in the early 1900s, died in 1950 or so. He wrote six reasons that Jesus chose Judas to be one of the twelve. And and these are good. I want to give these to you. Um, first is this. Jesus chose Judas to be one of the twelve in order to display his perfect obedience to the will of his Father. In order to display Jesus' perfect obedience to the will of God the Father. So in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5, 6, and 7 says this. 
The author of Hebrews writes, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, and and now he's going to quote from Psalm 40, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. In other words, Jesus quotes Psalm 40, and he claims it for himself. And he says there, in both Hebrews and in Psalms, that he came to do the will of the Father. And even as he said that in verse 38, here in verse, uh, chapter 6, 38, it says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I have come to do the will of the Father. So what was God's will for Jesus with regards to Judas? Listen to Psalm 41, verses 8 to 10. It says this, Psalm 41, 8. They say, a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. Jesus knowingly brought Judas into his inner circle that that prophecy, Psalm 41, verses 8 to 10, might come to pass. That the one who eats his bread, literally, would betray him. This should help us to understand that we actually... We actually do have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. One who has also experienced betrayal. He's been tempted in the same ways that we have, and yet he is without sin. Tempted to be bitter and angry towards the one who betrayed him. Tempted to hate. And yet, he still allows him to be a part of his inner circle. Second, Jesus chose Judas to be one of the twelve in order to provide an impartial witness to the righteousness of Christ. To provide an impartial witness to the righteousness of Christ. So many have made the argument that that Jesus was simply a good teacher. He was an excellent rabbi. They've claimed that that the things his his friends said about him, about his sinless perfection, they must be exaggerated. He was a good teacher, but there's no way he could have been sinless. But what about those who reject him? What about his enemies? Would his enemies make the claim that he was sinless? Judas did. In Matthew 27, verse 3, as... um, as the arrest and trial are underway, we read Matthew 27, 3 says, Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, What's that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went out and hanged himself. I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And then later in the chapter, by the way, after Jesus died, Matthew 27, verse 54 says this, When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, the Roman soldiers, 
A centurion is the commander of a hundred Roman men. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and, and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. This Roman centurion was not, at least up until this point, a friend of Jesus. These were the men who were beating him. These were the men who were hitting the nails into his hands and feet. And yet they proclaimed, the centurion proclaimed, truly this was the Son of God. Why would Jesus' enemies proclaim his innocence? So that we might believe. That's why. Truly this was the Son of God. Third, Jesus chose Judas to be one of the twelve in order to display for all to see the wretchedness of sin. The wretchedness of sin. Judas saw Jesus' miracles. He, He saw him, for example, verse 19 tells us, he saw him walk on water and was afraid. He saw him climb into the boat as they were in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. And he was fearful when he saw that. He witnesses he witnessed Jesus' entire saving ministry, and yet he still betrayed him. He had heard the gospel over and over and over. He had seen with his own eyes Jesus' sinlessness, his righteousness. And he knew of Jesus' prayer life. He knew of his devotion to his Father. And he betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver. This is the destructive power of sin. This is the grip of of greed and selfishness that our own sin has on our hearts. It it led Judas to suicide. I believe that it's very likely that some of you are sitting there and sin is just wrapped around you. You've not repented of your sin and believed in Christ. You'd rather have those 30 pieces of silver than eternal life. That brings us really to the fourth reason that Jesus chose Judas to be one of the twelve and that was in order to serve as a warning to sinners. There's a warning here for sinners. We can get really close to Jesus and yet still be lost. We can say all the right things, read all the right books, have our kids involved in the right programs and be active in ministry and come to church every week while never having been born again. We can be lying to yourself and everyone around you, but Jesus knows. Jesus knows. One of you is a devil, he says here to the twelve. My guess is there's probably more than one in here. And Jesus knows. And he chose Judas to be one of the twelve to serve as a warning to us. Fifth, these are related Jesus chose Judas to be one of the twelve in order to point out that we should expect to find hypocrites among God's people. We should expect to find hypocrites among God's people. Judas was not an honest unbeliever. He was a liar. He deceived the, the masses of desperate people who came to Christ for help. Matthew chapter 10 tells us that that as Jesus sent out the twelve, two by two, Judas is one of the men that he sent out to preach the gospel. He preached the gospel, but it turns out that he didn't believe it. Judas was so good at his hypocrisy that he had the other eleven fooled. Listen to this snippet from the Last Supper. 
And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, this is the last supper, Jesus said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful and say to him one after another, is it I? Is it going to be me? They didn't say, oh, it has to be Judas. If I'm going to bet on any of us, it's going to be Judas. No, they said, is it going to be me? He had them all fooled, but he never had Jesus fooled. He knew here in John 6, one of you is a devil. If this is you, you don't have Jesus fooled. You might have me fooled. You might have your family fooled, but you don't have Jesus fooled. Judas's hypocrisy ended with his selfish betrayal. And to be frank, it damned him. It ended with his selfish betrayal, and it, it damned him. Jesus knows, and he will not be mocked. Listen to Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. Paul says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, he, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap uh, from the flesh will reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Jesus chose Judas to be one of the twelve in order to point out that we should expect to find hypocrites among God's people. And then sixth, Jesus chose Judas to be one of the twelve in order to provide one more illustration that God's ways are not our ways. God's ways are not our ways. If, if you were developing, if you sat down with a piece of paper and were developing a master plan of salvation for the human race, my guess is it would not include this kind of hypocrisy and betrayal, right? In fact, I don't think it would include any of these guys, probably, probably includes some mighty men of valor, but not this ragtag group of misfits. But these misfits, they ask the right question. Lord, to whom should we go? To whom should we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. This is the good news, that despite the warnings, despite the, uh, the pointing out that there are probably hypocrites among us, despite that, God is long-suffering. And so even if you currently fit into one of these categories of people who have rejected Jesus, the Jews who reject him in anger, want nothing more to do with him, in fact, want everybody to just shut up about him, let's put him to death, put that behind us, I don't want to talk about it anymore. Or, or the, 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 the disciples who, oh boy, he's a great teacher. I don't really like that. I think I'm going to not come anymore. I think I'm not going to be involved with this guy anymore. Or those who sit there week in and week out and pretend. Even if we fit into one of these categories of people who've rejected Jesus, as long as there is breath in your lungs, you have hope. We have hope. I'll finish with this. In Romans chapter 5, Verses 6 to 11, we read this. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. 
But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This can be true for all of us. There is hope that while we were enemies, Christ died for us. And if we would believe that he is the bread of life, if we would come to him, we would never be hungry. We would never thirst. If we would believe that Jesus is who he says he is, we're no longer enemies, but friends. Friends of the Savior. This can be true for each of us if we would just believe. Let's pray. Lord, it is sobering to think of these three groups of rejectors. My guess is that most of us in here are not in the first category of those who reject Christ out of hand. Reject him right off the bat. After all, we're sitting in church, but maybe. Lord, my guess is that, one of, that we fall into one of the other categories often. And so it is my prayer, Lord, that if there are any here who do not know Jesus Christ, who do not know the Father who sent him, that they would believe, that they would run from their sin and trust in Christ that they would confess, as Simon Peter does on behalf of the disciples, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Write those words in our heart, Lord. Sear them into our brain. Change us, Lord, that we may cling to this truth, that we may not be a rejecter, but that we may hold steadfast to our God and Savior, Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen.